0: It's Dr. Audrey Tang here with another season of Retrain Your Brain. It's that podcast that helps you buffer low-level stress. It helps you return to a state of calm. It helps you find more joy in your life so you don't use up so much of your available energy on things that you cannot control. It's not the big choices in life that have the greatest impact, but the little things you choose to do every single day. So start making some choices with me now kick off this season with asking the question why don't workplace well-being sessions work well that's probably a little misleading because as most of you know i am a well-being trainer and i duly go to organisations or link in with them online with my stress busting and resilience building techniques my personal and professional mission is simple I realize that most people only seek help at the point of crisis, but if you make a commitment to building your mental and emotional fortitude every single day, as you might make a commitment to building your physical strength, you are in a better position to, one, buffer low-level stress without any detrimental effects, two, be able to return to a state of equanimity or calm following an anxiety-inducing event, and three, find more joy in your life, because you're not using up so much of your available energy on anxiety that you may not be able to control, address or remove. As I said in the introduction, for me, it's not the big choices in life that have the greatest impact, such as buying a house or changing jobs or starting a relationship, because they're defined. They also have an exit strategy, even if it's not always a happy one. But it's the little things we choose to do every single day, the little habits we create that really shape who we become. So we need to remember we have the agency to choose and to choose in a way that benefits our health and well being. However, this isn't easy. Our brain is there to protect us, and therefore it's already programmed to recognize fear more easily than happiness and physically we tend to do things that keep us comfortable because being uncomfortable feels like a threat. The irony of doing that though, is after a while, it can become too uncomfortable to make any change at all, even when you recognize that staying the same is no longer what you want. So the first thing I want to teach is that the best way to beat that rut is to look at change as having three zones. The first is the comfort zone, the place where we like to spend a lot of time, the next is the stretch zone, and the third is the panic zone. Now, understandably, neither our body nor our brain wants to get into the panic zone, but stretching, stretching can feel quite nice. Therefore, we can do something, anything. If we can do that little thing that pushes us into the stretch zone every single day, you'll soon find that that stretch will become comfortable and your old panic zone has moved to become the stretch zone. And amongst the exercises I teach are little stretches, such as keeping a mental social distance, asking yourself before taking on somebody else's psychodrama, is this really my responsibility? You can't save people from themselves. Although if it's within your power, you could signpost them. But try asking them if you are going to help, how best can I help you? What would you like me to do? What have you tried? What are you trying to achieve? All these questions offer support, but you can more effectively target your response because you've given the power back to the person asking and ask them to tell you what is going to help them best right now. Another lovely exercise is to ask yourself when you're stressed, how might I behave if I didn't have that thought? So for example, stress can be created very psychologically by the story we're telling ourselves. We might think a meeting went badly and carry the burden of that the whole day until someone tells us, that was great. And if you've ever been in that situation, you will see how a change in perspective can lift stress right away. So try asking yourself these four questions by Byron Katie. Number one, is that thought true and how do you know? Number two, how do you feel thinking that thought? Number three, how would you feel and act if you didn't think that thought? And number four, is there a healthier thought or action that will make you feel better than having this current thought? So these little tweaks in our behavior can result in big wins. And of course, this is what I teach. This is self-efficacy. And it does work, but well-being is not simply down to the individual alone it doesn't matter how many classes i teach or health and well-being tools that i arm you with if your organisation within which you spend a great deal of time is simply using well-being as a checkbox simply paying lip service within an otherwise toxic environment with no attempt to change already in 2015 the telegraph reported that lunchtime well-being sessions are appearing but doing very little at all often just making people docile. Worse still, rather than incorporate, say, well-being or mindfulness as an additional benefit, some organisations have even been providing their employees with mindfulness training in place of holiday entitlements and benefits. And this concern about workplace well-being was recently echoed by the TES Suggesting that there are many sticking plaster interventions going on, such as giving staff mindfulness apps and massages, which do at least do something. But they are aimed at the individual level when there are far greater, larger scale organisational interventions that need to be included. But when there was a large scale approach, teachers, this is a report by the TES, were press ganged into attending. And that's hardly conducive to emotional or mental health. The Harvard Business Review in 2019 even honed in a little more closely, where they said, just because these programs can be positive for business outcomes, it doesn't mean their primary purpose is to improve employees' daily lives. Then Hands On At Work asked, well, is there an honest and open culture in place where staff feel they'll be able to raise issues? Because if not, then a health and well-being policy won't work. And in 2021, All Workspace conceded that, the problem with many well-being programs is that they don't tackle the root cause of most workplace stress, toxic company culture. In my own PhD research, I found the issues of burnout in the workplace in customer facing individuals who used emotional labor, which is the display of behaviors and emotions contrary to what they might be feeling because of role expectations. For example, a stressed nurse speaking kindly to a patient. Those are the responsibility of yes, the worker, but also the customer or client and the management and organization. In many ways, it was the organization that needed to do the most because they could better manage customer expectations. They could better support their staff by changing their workplace practices. It is not enough for psychologists to be called in to support organizational well-being through stress-busting and coaching and building resilience. Because yes, this does give the individual the skills to manage within a fast-paced environment, but the problem is not an individual one alone. And even together with highly motivated clients and teams, we are no match for toxic work practices. Well-being sessions which build self-efficacy can only go so far it is essential that we start to consider how the individual can work within the organisation to embed well-being as a pillar of the workplace and not just remain a checkbox and that's all we have time for today. But to catch up with more of my tools and tips, do follow me on my YouTube channel, which is Dr. Audrey Tools to Thrive. Check out my website, www.audryt.com or join me in the Wellbeing Lounge on NLive Radio, Tuesday night at 9pm.